it is such a blessing to have each of you with us, especially as we celebrate what God has done and what he desires to do in us. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at common items that will be present when genuine revival takes place. And so far, we've looked at the presence of prayer, the preaching of the word, and the power of transformation. All three of these will always occur amidst a genuine revival. Prayer always precedes revival, and the word is always proclaimed during that revival. And the statement that you've heard repeatedly throughout this series is, revival without transformation is no revival at all. One of the greatest revivals to take place in history is what occurred in the early to mid-1800s. As I shared previously, it is said that the camp meeting revivals that came out of this became the birth of the evangelical church movement. And there were four key components to those camp meetings. One was the belief that Jesus only could save. Jesus is the only one who could actually save us from our sin. A second thing was the belief that Jesus is the only one who could sanctify us, transforming us into his image. The third is the belief that Jesus could heal. And the fourth is the belief that Jesus would one day return. That is almost a forgotten idea in our culture, even in the Christian community today. Well, today I want us to look at the belief that Jesus can heal. Several years ago, I was playing basketball uh, about five days a week. So I was actually in pretty good shape. For the most part, the same guys showed up every morning at about 5.30. And we all came became pretty good friends. Of course, everybody got nicknames, typically based on the way they played or occasionally based on something else that was unique about them. For example, we had Lefty Mark, we had Angry Jeff, we had Jamaican Jim, and we had Jumping Dan. So those were all some of the guys. I felt like Dan could probably jump about six feet in the air. It's probably not true, but that's what it felt like. Well, on this particular morning, I was able to steal the ball away from Jumping Dan. As he ran down the court, I stuck my hand in and grabbed the ball. Immediately, however, I realized that there was a problem. As I squeezed the ball, something didn't feel right. Apparently, my finger had brushed against Jumping Dan's hand and had become dislocated. The result was that the bones in my finger were no longer butting up against each other like that, but rather the bones were stacked on top of each other, and I could not control what that finger did. Fortunately, it wasn't my middle finger. <laughs> it should be noted that while it sounds ugly, it really didn't hurt. Well, I wasn't going to quit playing either, and what I did instead, I decided I would fix it and keep going. So I looked at Jumping Dan, and I got to use the phrase that every dad has used at least once in his life, yet rarely in its proper context. I held out my hand, and I said, hey, Dan, can you pull my finger? Of course, he laughed and said that he had seen that trick before, and he refused to pull my finger. He wasn't interested, so I ended up pulling it out myself, which is far less rewarding, I will say that, and it popped back into place, and the game continued. I share all that to point out that it was probably pretty foolish of me to ask Jumping Dan to fix my finger that day, 
Dan worked in janitorial services at a nearby hospital, but I'm not sure that qualified him to repair any portion of my body. Maybe I was so willing to ask him to do it because it was just a painless finger. I don't know, what do, I, what do you do when you've got something so small that's wrong with you? I do know this though, if this had been a more significant injury, I would not have been asking Jumping Dan to help. As those who live in a fallen world, all of us will have to endure pain, illness, and injury. And when we do, it just makes sense to go to those who we know are qualified to help us. And I'm not just talking about those who claim they can help us, like all those medical experts that we find on social media who have read just enough on a topic to be able to consider themselves a medical expert, or they took one entry-level medical class when they were in college, or their cousin's uncle's wife on the brother's side had the same thing. So if you'll just wrap it in honey, the pain will be gone. And we've got this great idea we can fix anything. I'm not talking about someone who thinks they can help, but someone who really does have the ability to heal. I'm talking about going to Christ. You know, Jesus loved people. Time and again in the Gospels, we can read that he healed someone. He performed a miracle. He preached, he taught, or in some way or another, he was involved in the lives of other people. He took a man who had many demons and allowed him to sit in his right mind, just like we talked about last week. He took a woman who had been caught in adultery and he erased her shame, restoring her and reminding her of the beautiful image of God that existed within her. And one could look and say that Jesus was bringing healing to these people. But healing can also be physical. The events in today's passage happened early in Jesus' ministry. If you want to turn, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. According to Mark chapter 1, he already had called his first four disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, to be those disciples, and had begun to minister to the people of Capernaum in various ways. Now we're going to see one or one of the more unusual episodes in this gospel. Look in verses 1 through 12, and I will read this whole section in its entirety. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. First thing I want you to see is what's going on inside the house. Jesus has returned to Capernaum after an interval of some days. From chapter 1, we can read that he had done a number of great things, but then he left. He had gone to any number of places. Jesus had gone throughout all Galilee, and I'm sure the people of Capernaum remembered how Jesus had not only taught with authority, again, as described in chapter 1, but he had also cast out a demon from a man who was somehow in the synagogue. Further, there were probably some who remembered how Jesus had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a fever, and then he had healed many others. Listen to Mark 1, 32 through 34. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This man, Jesus, had a track record of healing people. It makes sense that if you're going to go to somebody to help you, go to someone who has done it before. Nobody likes to go to the lady to get your hair cut, and she said, well, you know, you're my first one. Because there's this idea that I'm the test monkey here. Nobody wants that. You don't want a doctor who says, you know what, I think I can do this. No, you want one who's done it before. There is one thing that seems to, to be missing from the days that are described here in Mark chapter 1 and 2 as compared to the days that we are in today. And that one thing is a hunger and thirst for the Word of God. It's what I preached about two weeks ago. It's true that there were synagogues where the law and the prophets were expounded, but apparently nothing like the teaching ministry of Jesus, nothing like that had been there in a long time, probably ever. Again, we can refer back to Mark chapter 1, verse 22, where it records that Jesus spoke with authority, not as the scribes. And by the way, these are the same words that Matthew would use in Matthew 7, 29, as he described the way Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. And I bring this point out because I suspect that many in today's world would love to see the power of God to bring healing. If I told everybody that we're going to have a healing service, and in today's service, we are going to see people who could not walk, all of a sudden able to walk, this place would be packed. Because we're so interested in seeing the power that God has made available to us. But the truth is, we also need the holiness that Jesus Christ preached about so often. It's very exciting to see the, the charismatic, the great movements that take place, the powerful display, but it's just as exciting to see those lives that are transformed like what we talked about last week. We need the Word of God just as much as we need the power of God. We're not told whose house this was, nor the size of the house. 
Perhaps it was the same house that is mentioned in Mark chapter 1 that I actually read earlier where it said that all the people of the town, so everybody showed up to hear Jesus. I know that in my mind, I picture a house that we ate in while we were on a mission trip in Haiti several years ago. We arrived to this village by boat on Sunday morning as that was the only way to get into this village. It was a very impoverished area with most of the homes being little more than a few sticks with a tarp draped over top of it. But the house that we ate in that day was probably the nicest house in the village. Immediately following the service, everyone had pulled their supplies together. Uh, they were mi- mis- mismatched or mismatched. I'm going to call it mismatched plates. Uh, they were plates that didn't match each other. Um, everybody had brought a plate and a glass, and they had pulled together their resources. There's a fishing community. They made, I'm going to tell you, the most delicious seafood I've ever had in my life. It was conch soup. We got ready to eat, and as we got ready to eat, the full-time missionary leaned in, and he said, be sure not to eat too much. Said because what's going to happen is whatever is left over, that's what the people in this village will eat afterwards. He said it would be disrespectful not to eat, but don't ask for seconds. Man, that was really hard not to ask for seconds because it was really, really good. What happened was immediately following the service, we were ushered to this other house. And we went inside, and of course, all the food's there, and we prayed over the food, and then we got in line and began to eat. And I will say it was a little bit uncomfortable eating that day. Because as we sat in there eating this stucco house with windows that there was no glass to, but there were openings, in every window there were at least two or three people that were crowded in watching us eat. In the doorway there were people that were standing there watching us eat. And I kind of got the image as I read this story of the house looking rather similar. All the windows were crowded because the people wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to know what he had to say. The doorway was full. So much so that as individuals bring their friend, their friend cannot get in the house. Historically speaking, there are a few general principles that were common in homes during Jesus' day. All of them had at least one door leading either into the house or into the courtyard. There was usually another door, such as a trap door on the roof, so the household members could get up on the roof. Several books of the Bible actually describe where individuals would go up on the roof and benefit from the cooling breezes. Plus, a few years later, if you'll remember, Jesus and his disciples would have their last Passover meal together in a large upper room, a room that was possibly built on a rooftop. With this in mind, I want to take a look at what's happening outside the house. All we know for certain is that Jesus was in that house and he was preaching. The word to all the people who came there, and according to chapter 1, everybody came there. You imagine in chapter 1, everybody in the town shows up. Well, in chapter 2, if Jesus is back, well, you know what? We're still all coming. I don't want to miss it. You ever miss church and you thought afterwards, man, I I feel like I missed something, like there was something I should have been a part of. Well, that's kind of the way it would have been here. 
Jesus is speaking. Jesus is displaying his power. And what that means is everybody comes. I've often wondered how it would have been to have heard Jesus actually speaking for a sermon. Nobody could deliver a better sermon, I would imagine, than the living word of God himself. Mark also tells us that the people were standing near the door, straining, perhaps, to hear Jesus preach. And not only were they not able to get in themselves, but because of this, they also would have kept others out, including among, included among those who could not get in to see Jesus were the four men with their sick friend who needed to be healed. Mark, by the way, is the only one of the three evangelists who noted the crowd waiting and standing by the door and that there was a group of four men who were carrying the sick man. The sickness, by the way, was a serious illness. In the ESV, which I read from today, it says that he was a paralytic. In the King James Version, it says that he was sick of the palsy, which in the Greek is paralyticos, which is where we get the term, obviously, paralytic. It's the same word for the condition that affected the centurion servant whom Jesus would heal in Matthew chapter 8. When similar events and similar illnesses affect people in the same area, some might wonder if there's another cause to it. Regardless of what caused the problem, these men, all five of them, the four that are carrying and the one who is being carried, they wanted this sick man to be healed. Sometimes we need to remember that there was very little in the way of charity or help for those who were disabled in this day. There certainly were no safety nets as we have for people today. The government wasn't stepping in, and unfortunately, not even the religious leaders really took much interest in helping such individuals. This man had to eat and drink. He had to arrange to have his taxes paid, and if he couldn't work or didn't receive charity, then what was he going to do? This man desperately wanted to be healed. Perhaps they had heard how Jesus had healed before. Maybe they had even been present back in Mark chapter 1. Or maybe word had come to them about the centurion's servant. Could they have seen Jesus perhaps perform other miracles? Or had they heard him preach in the synagogue? Where did they receive their faith? What I can assure you is they had great faith. And the reason I know that is because they put their faith into action. They weren't simply content with saying, well, we tried to get him to Jesus. They took action, putting legs on their faith, believing that Jesus could heal their friend. They found the way blocked by people standing too close to the door. If I read the text correctly, there didn't seem to be any rush or even a concern about letting this sick man get close enough to Jesus so he could be healed. Imagine that. You got all these people. They're probably healthy, but man, they're excited because they get to see something that's unique. They want to see Jesus face to face. And then you got this one guy who he needs to be healed. And these guys could easily part the way so that the individual could come through and experience the healing power of God, but not a single one moved because they wanted so much to be able to see Jesus that they weren't willing to allow Jesus to do what he could do. I wonder which one of the five figured out, hey, let's, let's try the roof as a means to get past the crowd. 
they end up going up on the roof. Let's remember that most, if not all, houses in the New Testament era would have had doors and also staircases. We've looked at this briefly. There were uses for staircases from a way to get off of the street quickly or to come down from the rooftop. I doubt the designers or the carpenters who built these houses figured staircases would eventually be used for emergency medical treatment. We can also admire the skills of these four men. They somehow got their friend, carried him up onto the roof. None of the evangelists explain how, but they were strong enough and balanced enough where they were able to get him up there. And as Mark says, they uncovered the roof and they broke up the roof. So even if there was a door that was there, it wasn't enough to be able to get a man on his mat through to Jesus. So maybe they open it up and they can see what's happening now, but they still can't get their friend through there. So it says that they broke up the roof so that he could be lowered down in front of Jesus. I won't take the time to quote commentators, but some give very thorough explanations as to how they might have done it. Or instead of skill, maybe it was their desperation that drove them that day. And what did they use to do the excavating? We don't read that any of them had any tools. In fact, that wasn't their plan when they left that morning. All we know is that they somehow dug a hole in the roof and they got their friend to Jesus. And that was really all that mattered. It didn't matter how they got there. They got their friend to Jesus. You know, we've talked often about desperation. It's a dreaded thing. Nobody likes to experience it, but it's also a beautiful thing. Nobody likes the feeling of hopelessness or despair. Yet it is often during our most difficult times that we find communion with our God. It's often when we suffer the most that we seek the Lord and his help more passionately. Maybe a little like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they were the ones thrown in the fiery furnace. And in their moment of crisis, that was where they had their fresh encounter with Jesus Christ in the fiery furnace. You know, as we look back at what's happening in the room, this man has been lowered on the mat, Jesus being human, he couldn't help but notice the commotion that has taken place above him on the rooftop. But I imagine that he kept teaching as the work went on. After all, he clearly was all-knowing, so this didn't surprise him at all. But we know that he eventually stopped, and when he saw the man being lowered down from the hole in the roof, what did Jesus say? He took a look at the man and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I won't go into the interaction between Jesus and the scribes this morning and why they were even there. I think that's a really good question about the, the power Jesus had to forgive sins. He did and he does from those days to these days. I do want to point out the, just a, a little bit of a commentary. Uh, it is interesting that these scribes were present that day. These were religious people, yet they're coming to Jesus to experience something that they weren't experiencing anywhere else. I wonder how many religious people we have in our churches today, or even in our Christian schools, who have never truly had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Yes, we are religious, but how many of us 
have truly had an encounter with Jesus Christ. It's a sad commentary on the church, isn't it? That people could go to church all their lives, yet not truly know the Savior, the Messiah, Christ himself. Anyways, the episode closes with Jesus telling the man to rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. Mark closes this story by saying that the sick man immediately rose up, took up his bed, and walked out in front of all of them. I want you to think about this. Now, his legs had probably withered due to inactivity. He hadn't been able to walk. Why else would four of his friends be the ones carrying him in? And he probably couldn't carry much of anything anyways. He's healed, though. Jesus doesn't just tell him, get up and leave. I want you to bend over. I want you to pick up your mat. You've got all that you need now. And it doesn't say that he sat there and he worked up the energy, that all of a sudden he could feel his legs starting to, to build up. And after about 20 minutes, this man got up on his feet and grabbed his mat. It says immediately, immediately, he stood up, took his bed, and he walked out. I do think he celebrated a little bit. It doesn't say it, but I picture him running and wrapping his arms around Jesus, maybe trying to get up to his four friends who had brought him to thank them to celebrate with him. But he takes the mat and he walks out. Nobody could dispute any of it. Listen to the words of the crowds. We never saw anything like this. I can't tell you how all of this works. What I can tell you is that God still has the ability to heal today just as he did back then. I can't tell you why God chooses to heal some and doesn't choose to heal others. I just know that he is our greatest hope. I've shared this before, but I have been blessed to be on both sides of healing. In August of 1997, I ruptured a disc in my back between L4 and L5. It was the most miserable pain I'd ever experienced in my life. In December of 97, God completely healed me. And I stand before you now completely pain-free and able to do far more than my doctors ever imagined possible. And I can't take credit. They gave me exercises that I was supposed to do Man, I confess, I wasn't very disciplined. It wasn't because I did something right. What it came down to was the people of God prayed that God would heal me, and that's exactly what he did. In addition, I've been able to pray over individuals who were in need of healing, and God has provided on multiple occasions. We had a young man, his name was Scott, Scott Gerald, 18 years old, working on a truck in the front yard, you never want to jack a truck up in the yard. He was actually underneath it. He had already pulled off the tire, and he was trying to get the brake shoes off, but he was actually under the vehicle, and the jack shifted, and it fell on his knee. It took nine people to lift the vehicle up enough so that someone else could drag him out, and this was after he had probably been under it for close to 10 minutes. They airlifted him to Christiana Hospital, which is in Delaware, and... When he got there, immediately they took him in to see about amputating his leg because it had been that long. 
I got there and we prayed and they were trying to figure out at that point whether they were going to amputate at the knee or if they were going to have to go all the way up to the hip. We gathered together and we prayed. Probably about 10 minutes later, the nurse comes in and asks him how tall he is. He answered the question. I grabbed her by the arm and said, excuse me, ma'am, if you're going to cut off his leg, what difference does it make how tall he is? I was a little bit irritated. She said, sir, I can't understand it, but we just did the x-rays and we can't find anything wrong with his leg at all. And that night, he walked out on crutches. By the time he went to bed that night, he had put the crutches away. He is now serving the United States Army stationed down in Florida. That's only because we still have a miracle-working God. Do you know today that God can still perform mighty miracles? I know the world around us acts like this is just some religious group and we just come together to have fellowship with each other. And there is an element of truth to that. But we gather together because we serve a God who is over everything. And there is no limit to what he can and cannot do. He is able to do far more than we could ever imagine. Let me challenge you with this this morning as I wrap up. First, if you have a need, regardless of how big or small it may be, know that the place to turn is to Jesus. He is the healer that we all need. And in accordance with the words of James, we are told to call upon the elders of the church to pray so that you may be healed. Second thing that I would challenge you with, do you remember the man do you remember what the man did when Jesus told him to rise up, take your bed and go home? He immediately got up and walked through the very same crowd. Remember, they didn't have room for him to get in, but they could make room for him to get out afterwards. And as he walked out, he became a living testimony of what God could do for all of them. If you've experienced God's touch in your life, whether we're talking physical, emotional, or spiritual, then you be the one that shows the rest of the world what God can do for them. You be that living testimony. In just a moment, you will have the opportunity to see living testimonies. Actually, we are going to do some baptism. Those who are being baptized, if you want to go and get ready for the baptism and that way we can go ahead and uh, do it relatively quickly. But um, in the act of baptism, there's nothing magical about the water that we are about to use. It's just water that has been heated, fortunately, and I'm very grateful for that. However, this symbolizes what has taken place when individuals have surrendered their lives to Christ. On the one hand, it symbolizes the, the washing that is done. The very moment that an individual confesses their sins, we are told that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that as these individuals have already surrendered their lives to Christ, they have already been cleansed. And them being dunked into the water and then coming out is symbolically celebrating the cleansing that God has done. But let me suggest it is also in a manner a way for us to remember Christ, as Christ himself went down into the grave and then he came back up. And when he came back up, 
what he does is he comes back up with more than just mortality, but with immortality. As individuals enter into a relationship with Christ, they now have the promise, not just of a good life here, but eternal life. They have moved from mortality to immortality. So this is an opportunity for us to celebrate that as well. We have two individuals who are going to be baptized this morning. And uh, man, all of a sudden I'm realizing Daly's not here to lead y'all in a song. Because I got to go change. Which one of y'all is going to lead us in a song real quick? Vicky, come on. Raymond, come on up. You get to pick the song too. I promise to be quick so you won't have to do but one. Raymond does our, leads our singing on Wednesday nights as well, so this is his gift. He is really good with this anyways. Uh, I was about to call him Blanche, so I'm, I'm glad that she volunteered Raymond. <laughs> All right, so Raymond, if you'll come up and lead us in a song, we'll be back out in just a minute back here for the baptism.
Take a nap together. 